The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? I need to give you a heads up because I think I'm going to start using the word snollygoster a lot more. <laughs> what? Snollygoster, you know, the term for an unprincipled but shrewd person. So I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, let's go back to 2003. Snollygoster got kicked out of the dictionary, which is just ridiculous. So there was this huge campaign to bring it back. And the thing is, if enough people keep using it, the editor of the Webster's Dictionary said he'd consider adding it back in. <laughs> in fact, the word Chad was on the shortlist to get kicked out, too. And then infamous Florida election debacle occurred and suddenly the word was back. <laughs> so what you're saying is we just have to interfere with an election or something similarly big to get the word snollygoster back into play. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, there, there are no bad ideas in brainstorming. <laughs> but getting a sneak peek at how the dictionary works is just part of today's show. Today, we're diving into the weird world of reference, from almanacs to encyclopedias, all to get a better look at the human fascination for cataloging knowledge in this delightfully skimmable way. So let's dig in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Shatikater. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, the only person I know who's reading the dictionary cover to cover, and actually he's already reviewed it on Goodreads, that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. <laughs> yeah, and he actually gave it a scathing review. Mm. He found the whole thing disjointed, mm. and uh, he didn't like how the aardvark at the beginning of the book didn't show up later in the story. I get it, I get it. He's, he's, <laughs> he's a pretty tough judge. Well, speaking of dictionaries, today's show is all about the weird world of reference books. You know, from a young age, most of us are trained to turn to dictionaries or thesauruses and all these other reference books for our linguistic and grammatical needs. But how did these exhaustive reference books come to be? Why are there so many competing versions? And just how relevant are they in today's increasingly digital world? So these are the kinds of questions we're going to be tackling today. Right. And to start things off, I thought we could look at the granddaddy of all reference books, the encyclopedia. 
So is the encyclopedia the oldest? Like, did, did people, it seems like people would have started with dictionaries, though, right? Yeah, that's what I would have guessed, too. I mean, like, the idea of cataloging all of the current words seems to be way easier than, I don't know, like, trying to record every single thing ever known. But that's not where humans chose to begin. Mm. So the first encyclopedias can be traced back to ancient Syria in 1270 B.C. It wasn't called an encyclopedia in those days. In fact, the word encyclopedia didn't come into use until the 1500s. And that word is a Latinized take on this ancient Greek phrase for general education. But the more interesting definition is the literal one, which is training in a circle. So why a circle? I mean, were these encyclopedias round or something? No, so the circle was this common symbol for the liberal arts, like the seven areas of arts and sciences that were deemed necessary for making a well-rounded person. All right, well, that's a, a good title. But it is funny to think of an encyclopedia as everything you need to know, especially when you consider some of the weird stuff that wound up in the really early ones. So what, what are you talking about? One of the most famous early encyclopedias is the one assembled in the first century A.D. by the Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder. And it's full of information that's hilarious, but maybe not so reputable. So despite calling his epic 37-book encyclopedia the Historia Naturalis, or Natural History, Pliny had some questionable ideas about the inner workings of the human body. And one of the funniest examples is his woeful misunderstanding of women's bodies, and specifically periods. So I'm going to read how he describes it. He says, On the approach of a woman in this state, seeds which are touched by her become sterile. Garden plants are parched up and the fruit will fall from the tree beneath which she sits. Her very look will dim the brightness of mirrors, blunt the edge of steel, and take away the polish from ivory. A swarm of bees, if looked upon by her, will die immediately. Brass and iron will instantly become rusty and emit an offensive odor, while dogs which may have tasted of the matter so discharged are seized with madness, and their bite is venomous and incurable. Well, I don't know about you, but it sounds like Pliny was a real feminist. Oh, big time. <laughs> Had he even met a woman? Like, it feels <laughs> like it would be so easy to disprove all of the stuff. I know, but that wasn't the only inaccuracy in Pliny's books. You know, for example, he provided one of the earliest descriptions of unicorns. <laughs> so Pliny wrote, the unicorn is the fiercest animal, and it is said that it is impossible to capture one alive. It has the body of a horse, the head of a stag, the feet of an elephant, the tail of a boar, and a single black horn three feet long in the middle of its forehead. <laughs> I'm glad you gave everyone like a definitive account of what a unicorn looks like. <laughs> the only part he got right was the horn part. Right, right. Nailed it on that, though. <laughs> but really, I mean, I don't think we should pick on the Romans too much, because when encyclopedias finally made their leap to England in 1768, they were still crammed full of like terrible fictional entries. Yeah. So 1768 is actually the year the Encyclopedia Britannica was first made. It was assembled by three Scottish men, and it consisted of just three volumes at the time. So nowadays, the first edition is mostly interesting as kind of a record of people's priorities in the 18th century and just how little those line up with our own. So what do you mean by that? So the encyclopedia includes 40 pages about horse disease. Wow. <laughs> there is no information about children and only four words on, on the entry for women. <laughs> well, I mean, after that Pliny description, I'm almost afraid to ask, but what were those four words? It's, it's super definitive. The female of man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess I see what you mean about skewed priorities on this. I mean, it's ridiculous. They took the time to calculate the exact number of animal species that were on Noah's Ark, but they couldn't spend more than four words on half the human population. 
but did they really record how many animals were on Noah's Ark? Yeah, apparently there were 177, which huh. also doesn't seem right. Right, right. But, but there's some entries where, you know, you kind of have to give it to the Scots for creativity. So there's one for the cure of flatulence that they say consists of drinking chamomile tea and then uh, blowing pipe smoke up your bum. <laughs> Or the entry on vermicelli noodles is amazing. It's described as a food in great vogue with the Italians due to its use as an aphrodisiac. Wow. You know, I was actually looking at this edition as well. And and one of the entries I love from that first Encyclopedia Britannica is the one on California. Now, just for the record, the region wouldn't become a state for close to 100 years after this publication. So really not much was known about it. But they didn't even bother to spell check the thing. So (laughs) California is mistakenly spelled with two L's. Also, it's referred to as, quote, a large country of the West Indies, unknown whether it's an island or a peninsula (laughs) or neither, maybe. (laughs) But, I mean, you kind of have to love their confidence, right? Right. And also, as funny as accidental inaccuracies can be, I actually still prefer the intentional ones. And I, I know you and I have talked about this before, but editors of reference books sometimes include fake entries as a means of preventing plagiarism from their competitors. And the idea is if you use a made-up word and then that subject appears in a rival's reference book, the originator can accuse the other of poaching the entries, you know, which qualifies as copyright infringement. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, and it is fascinating to follow these things. You know, I know in an atlas they're called paper towns, you know, like the places that are made up on maps, but... So how long has this been going on? So for at least a century. In dictionaries and encyclopedias, they're called Mount Weasels, (laughs) which comes from a phony entry in the 1975 edition of the New Columbia Encyclopedia. According to the original entry on her, Lillian Virginia Mount Weasel was an American photographer who received a government grant to take pictures of rural mailboxes. (laughs) Sadly, Lillian died in a freak explosion while on assignment for the equally fictitious Combustibles magazine. Oh, man. This one's kind of a shame, though. That This one shouldn't be made up. I would totally read Combustibles magazine. I know, me too. But Lillian's story does have a happy ending of sorts. Like, her imaginary life has since been commemorated in the form of real dictionary entries for the word Mount Weasel. <laughs> That's pretty great. Actually, I just pulled up a list of Mount Weasels here, and there's some really good ones out there. So we've got... Apopola Dubalia, which was uh, this made-up Greco-Roman sport similar to modern soccer. And this one actually maybe is my favorite. Esquivalience, which is defined as a purposeful error made to easily spot plagiarizers. I love that. I feel like I missed a calling just making up definitions for fake words. All right, so there's obviously a ton more we could say about encyclopedias, but since we're talking word definitions, let's put the encyclopedia back on the shelf and spend some time with what's probably the most popular type of reference book, and that's, of course, dictionaries. Now, just like with the idea of assembling a compendium of knowledge, the concept of listing out all the words in a given language is one that dates back thousands of years. But for our purposes, let's stick with the modern period of dictionaries, you know, when the English version began cropping up around, you know, say the 17th century or so. And why is that? Well, the number of words in the English language actually doubled between 1500 and 1650. And this was largely due to the Renaissance, which brought a wealth of words derived from Latin and Greek to British lips for the very first time. But it was also a time when travelers and traders from foreign countries were mingling new words into Europe's vocabulary. So all these unfamiliar new words coupled with the rise of printed books, it really set the stage for the world's first English dictionary. And that came along in 1604, compliments of a schoolmaster named Robert Caudry. It's so funny. There are all these names I know, like Webster and Roger, but I've never heard of Caudry. Yeah, well, you know, Caudry's table, alphabetical, as he called it, wasn't exactly a general language dictionary. It's, It's what's called a hard word dictionary. 
and it basically provided easy to understand definitions for all these new and difficult foreign words, which had kind of made their way into the English language during the previous decades. That's really interesting. So, when did the first more general dictionary come about, though? Well, the idea of a general dictionary for everyday words it kind of didn't catch on until maybe seventy or so years later, and it was a man named Elisha Coles who who published this dictionary that added regional terms. He also added slang and and just some other common words to the existing slate of hard words from the previous books. Well, I'm kind of glad you mentioned the inclusion of slang because there's one slang dictionary in particular that I really want to talk about. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break. A new season of Bridgerton is here, and with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the surprisingly strange world of reference books. Now, most people are familiar by this point with the dictionary makers like Samuel Johnson and Noah Webster, and, you know, for good reason. It was in 1755 that Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language was introduced as the most comprehensive one to date. It was the very first to use quotations to help illustrate how words could actually be used. And then came Webster's Dictionary that was published in 1828, And it was one of the first lexicons to include definitions of more than 10,000 Americanisms. These had never been included in the British dictionaries. You know, words like skunk and squash and chowder. (laughs) And the book was a product of more than two decades of work and was crucial in helping standardize English spelling. Things like dropping the U in color, for instance. But, you know, as important as these contributions were, there's a different story that you were saying you wanted to tell today, right, Mango? Yeah, so those guys are great, and it isn't an exaggeration to say our language wouldn't be the same without them. But they're not the only ones that's true of. And that's why I want to make sure we talked about the Hepster Dictionary, which is a, a compendium of Harlem slang that's believed to be the first dictionary written by an African-American. Oh, wow. I, I've actually never heard of this. So who's the author? So that's one of the really cool things about it. It was written by Cap Calloway, who's, you know, the <laughs> legendary jazz musician and band leader. He could also do the moonwalk. Right. And... By the way, he retired in Delaware because, you know, it was a short train ride from Baltimore and New York City. Glad you were able to work in your (laughs) Delaware fact of the day. Yeah, but in the 1920s and 30s, Cab Calloway was this mainstay in the Harlem music scene. And the neighborhood had become a center of African-American culture, you know, with the Harlem Renaissance and all that. And as Erin Blakemore put it in her article on History.com, quote, Harlem was full of slang. Jazz musicians like Calloway talked jive a kind of shorthand that turned ordinary conversation into an extended jazzy riff. It was also a matter of survival. Though it was spoken in public, it was a way for African Americans to communicate privately, a kind of linguistic rebellion that was as serious as it was humorous. That's pretty awesome. And so obviously Calloway was familiar with Jive, but how did he come to write the dictionary on it? Well, his songs were full of words and phrases that eventually wound up in the dictionary. And Gabe actually jotted down a few of these for me, like cool, groovy, chick, moocher, boogie-woogie, jitterbug, and come again. Those all, (laughs) you know, were were used by him. But but the idea to compile all of them in print came in the late 30s when Cab Calloway noticed that black musicians were being pushed aside by white swing musicians. And they'd kind of co-opted the sound. Right. So to keep himself and the culture he helped pioneer relevant, Cab and his manager worked together on this slender pamphlet that defined jive for audiences who'd never heard the street slang before. It was published in 1938, I believe, and and it became a hit with both black and white readers. And in fact, he did seven volumes of the thing, and it even became the official reference book of Jive in the New York Public Library, which was something Cab was immensely proud of. Yeah, and I love that. You know, even though it seems to have indirectly saddled us with the the you know the hipsters of today, it's it's so great that Callaway chronicled that moment in black culture. And the Harlem Renaissance was soon eclipsed by the Great Depression. So, you know, we're pretty lucky to have all that culture and and not have it lost to history. Exactly. And I actually heard this BBC interview with a British poet about Cab's dictionary. And he had this really great insight about it. As he put it, quote, Cab Calloway was taking ownership of language for a people who, just a few generations before, had their own languages taken away. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I hadn't thought of that. But, you know, since since we're talking about how dictionaries come together, I do want to talk a little bit about what it takes to get a new word added to the dictionary. Because there is a process to it, and it's one that we don't hear about often. 
I mean, sure, we hear about the list of the new words that Merriam-Webster adds with each new edition, or at least more decidedly modern editions, you know, things like crowdsourcing and manspread or even OMG, which was mm-hmm. added. But, you know, you don't hear much about how these new words are actually chosen to be included. Yeah, that's a good point. So, first of all, who does decide what gets added? Well, that's left up to the lexicographers. And, and for anyone who doesn't have their own reference book handy, those are the people whose job it is to compile dictionaries. They pay attention to whenever a new word or phrase becomes popular And then they start collecting citations of the word, including its contextual meaning. They comb through this database to find evidence that the word has cropped up over time among this diverse group of people. And when that big case file is assembled, the last step is for the dictionary editors to review the evidence and decide whether or not to include the new word in the next edition of their company's dictionary. So it basically boils down to like popularity and usage, which makes sense, but What about the words we remove from the dictionary? Is it really just a matter of determining how many people are still using a certain word? Well, that's where things get a little bit more complicated. You know, the way it works is that the editors try to determine which words are most relevant today. And then then they go back and weed out the ones that are most definitely not being used as much today. So editors might assemble a list of potential cuts. You've got obscure words like cranch or prolan or (laughs) octandrius that have... All been cut from the dictionary. Wait, what's a crunch? Like a uh, crunchy ranch dressing? <laughs> oh, that sounds gross. <laughs> I think it's a loud noise. Or I actually have found a Scottish reference book that said it's an alternative for crunch, which is to crunch with your mouth, apparently. <laughs> I don't know why we need another word for that, but it's no longer in the dictionary, so you really don't have to worry about it at this point. <laughs> I like that there's crunch, cringe, and crunch. <laughs> yeah. We just need to crunch. <laughs> but uh, I interrupted you. You were talking about how words get tossed from the dictionary. Right. So so the editors have a list of words that aren't used that often, and then they search through sources like Google Books or other dictionaries and, of course, the Internet, and they try to see how frequently these words turn up. And there are always exceptions, too. You know, for example, the and thou, they don't really pop up much in everyday conversation anymore, but since they're so prevalent in all these widely read books, they're pretty safe from the chopping block. Okay, that makes sense. And I, I actually remember reading this book, Word Freak, by Stephen Fatsis about the world of competitive Scrabble. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I remember best from it was these people who would petition to have words put back into the dictionary. They were just these word lovers who would spend their free time, I mean, when they weren't dominating at Scrabble, just right. fighting to have words reintegrated into the English language. But here's my question. Like, why target words for removal at all? Is it just to save on printing costs? I think the bigger concern is that the dictionary will become too massive and unwieldy to use if nothing is ever omitted from it. But practicality isn't even the only reason that words get cut. I mean, if you think about it, there are plenty of online dictionaries that don't have to worry about the space that they take up, but they don't include every single word from the English language either. And that's largely because most dictionaries are trying to present the current state of semantics. You know, the words that most typify our language and and kind of in the here and now, if you think about it. So, you know, the only exception I can think of is the Oxford English Dictionary, like the OED, which Mm -hmm. is more concerned with chronicling and preserving English in its entirety. And to that end, the OED doesn't remove words or definitions. Instead, they just note when a particular word or meaning is outdated. Yeah, yeah, that, that is an interesting exception to this. Well, you know, as long as we're talking about the intentions behind reference books, I feel like we should go ahead and cover the other two biggies of the reference world, and those would be thesaurus and almanacs. Yeah, but before we do that, let's take a quick break. Okay, 
Okay, Mango, it's quiz time. Now, I know we're talking reference books today, so we thought it would be appropriate to bring in one of our favorite podcasters here at How Stuff Works and someone known for doing an intense amount of research before <laughs> any of his episodes. Scott Benjamin, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You guys may know Scott from Car Stuff. And now, Scott, I have to admit, you, you sit right across from us in the office. Yes. And when we look over and see these stacks of research it kind of makes us feel like maybe we're not doing enough i know I, I feel like i i read at least a book skim a bunch of books for for every episode and then i see this like like half a meter high <laughs> stack oh, yeah. of papers that, that yeah. you're just skimming through it's Re- amazing reams of paper i do it uh, the old school way i guess i'm i'm, I'm an analog guy right yeah right. so um i don't bring a laptop in with me to podcast which i think almost everybody does yeah everything is on paper i've got uh color-coded tabs. I've got notes everywhere. It's uh, it's kind of a mess, but it's a mess that I know how to work with. Wow. <laughs> I thought maybe it was an intimidation tactic. Do I remember the story correctly that th- there was a, a legend about Karl Rove, like when he was on the debate team in high school? Yeah, that's right. And he would wheel in this huge cart with all of these containers full of, or they were supposed to be full of, index cards, right? That, of notes That was debating, just an intimidation yeah. tactic. And it turns out that most of them were just blank, but they were just there to make it seem like he had prepped more than anyone. Oh, I'll, I'll show you my stack of notes. I'll share. But, okay. uh, there's, <laughs> there's, uh, there's notes everywhere in there. It's, it, it's quite a mess, and, and no one else would be able to put it together with the, uh, the information that I compile. Wow. Um, I just know where everything is. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a system. That's unbelievable. How many episodes of Car Stuff did you uh, did you host? I'm going to say it's uh, it was approaching 900. I don't know an exact number, but almost 900. We were we were on air for nine years and one month. Yeah, so it was crazy. a long time. Wow, wow, very cool. Well, it's an unbelievable archive there that it's uh, really fun to dig into. And also, I so want to tell the listeners like about your new show, but I, I know we got to keep it under wraps. <laughs> I'm so excited for it though. Yeah, we've got something in the works that uh, hopefully. Everybody will also be on board with, but it's it's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting. we're going to have you on uh, again to debut that when, when it comes oh, out. Great, so. very cool. Yeah. We're talking Good reference books today and playing a game with Scott. What's it called, Mango? It's called Real Nonfiction Title or Something We Made Up. So every year, the Diagram Book Group gives a prize at the Frankfurt Book Fair for the year's oddest title. So every one of these titles is either going to be one of those strange books or something we made up. Wait, are you saying real nonfiction? That's it? <laughs> yes. It, this is a real nonfiction <laughs> title or something we made up in oh. terms of a title. Okay, I'll do my best. All right. You ready to play? Here we go. Number one, the first title is Managing a Dental Practice, the Genghis Conway. Real or something we made up? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm going to say that's made up. Oh, what is it, Mango? It's actually real. That so, is real? Yeah, it won the Diagram Prize in 2010. Oh okay, God. here we go. You still have plenty of time to come back. All right, number okay. two. A Field Guide to Mid-Century Water Slides of North Dakota. A Field Guide to the Mid-Century Water Slides of North Dakota. I'm going to say that it's not real. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how you tell the difference between the mid-century and the post-mid-century water slides. (laughs) That one had mango written all over it. Okay. okay. Number three. The Commuter Pig Keeper. A Comprehensive Guide to Keeping Pigs When Time is Your Most Precious Commodity. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I'm going to say that one's real. Is that one real, Mango? Yeah, it's absolutely real. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Commuter Pig Keeper, a comprehensive guide the, to keeping pigs when time is your most precious commodity. <laughs> the commuter it just keeps going. Pig keeper. I needed three breaths what to is say a, that. What is a commuter pig keeper? We're going to have to get a hold of this book. I feel like you're going to need it for research, for, uh, for probably for your next project. I guess so. so. All right, you're two out of three. The next one. 
The Circus Performers Index for High Performance Stilt Makers. Sorry, I'm trying to keep it. No, straight away. All right. The yeah. Circus Performers Index for High Performance Stilt Makers. Real or something we made up? This one has got to be made up. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right. High Performance Stilts. I think you have more fun making this stuff up than you do with anything we work on. I've seen, you know, I've seen uh, those. Uh, I, I guess you could call them high performance pogo sticks. Have you seen right. those? Oh, yeah. But never yeah. stilts. Right. Stilts that's just... how you, that's where. Otherwise, if it had been the Circus Performance Index for high performance, <laughs> what, pogo sticks? It's a piece of wood. You would have been all over yeah, it. Yeah. Piece of wood. Okay, here we go. Number five. Goblin proofing one's chicken coop. <laughs> Stop it, Mango. Goblin proofing one's chicken coop. Real nonfiction or something we made up? Ah, oh, that one feels like it's real. What? <laughs> what year was this, Mango? How did you know that? It, uh, it came out in 2012, and it's a guide to banishing fairies from both your home and your chickens. Wow. Goblin proofing a chicken coop. He is mm. on a roll. This okay. is the last one for the big prize. Okay. The title is Crazy Cool Ideas for Bedazzling Your Thrift Store Straight Jackets. Crazy cool ideas for bedazzling your thrift store straight jackets. Straight, if you hadn't thrown straight jackets in, I would say that was real. Yeah. Any other garment, but straight jackets, no. Is that right, Mango? Yeah, it's something we made up. Oh, wow. That was <laughs> pretty you, impressive. Have you ever found a straight jacket at a thrift store? I, I can't say <laughs> that I have. Have you? No, I haven't. No, okay. no I, haven't. Right. I thought we were about to get something good there. I saw some concern on your yeah. face when I asked it, but uh, what an unusual find that would be, especially a bedazzled one, right? <laughs> Right. That's, why, that's why I love that title. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a whole community of people who find their th- uh, their straight jackets at thrift oh, stores. Right, right. Where do you get them? You love that title that you made up. <laughs> so, Mango, um, how did Scott do today? Uh, Scott went an amazing five for six, and yeah. that entitles him to our prize this week, which is a real book called The Stray Shopping Carts of Eastern North America. A guide to field identification. Oh, now that one I would have guessed is is false. <laughs> that's a real one, huh? <laughs> well, you have one there. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, well, Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for allowing me to play. I appreciate it. <laughs> a new season of Bridgerton is here, and with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season. We are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay, well, so answer the question on everyone's mind. Is it really thesauruses and not thesauri? <laughs> Is that on everybody's mind? <laughs> I mean, I think you might be overstating the demand for that answer, but I'll admit it. I was curious about this as well, so I decided to look it up. And it turns out both are perfectly acceptable to say. <laughs> Although if you want to get technical, Grammarist points out that the correct way to pluralize the Latin word thesaurus would be to add the suffix I which means thesauri is technically the proper pluralization. I feel like I've got to carry around two thesauruses just to be able to bring that in up in a sentence. Exactly, you know? yeah. <laughs> but as long as we're on the words etymology, I'll, I'll go ahead and mention that unlike encyclopedia, thesaurus actually has this really straightforward meaning. It's derived from a Greek word meaning storehouse of precious items, or more simply put, treasure. Isn't that great? (laughs) That is pretty great. And, you know, plenty of writers would agree with that, including the man who supposedly wrote the very first thesaurus. His name was Philo of Byblos, and he was an ancient Greek scholar who wrote a book of synonyms titled On Synonyms. (laughs) I mean, it feels like Philo missed a great opportunity to drop in a bunch of subheads, like On Synonyms, also a bunch of word alternates, substitutes, and equivalents (laughs) I found for you. (laughs) But was uh, Philo really the first to find this? Well, Philo was first. I mean, his book came out in the first and second century CE. But for my money, the most interesting early thesaurus was actually written a couple centuries later. It was in the fourth century CE by an Indian poet named Amara Sena. Hmm. And his book of Sanskrit words wasn't your typical stuffy thesaurus. Sena divided the included words into three sections. There were those relating to the divine, the earth, and everyday life. And each section contained poetic verses and integrated the words so that readers could have an easier time remembering them. It's actually kind of an extraordinary accomplishment. And, you know, while we know of Philo's thesaurus only through mentions in other people's writings, copies of Amara Sena's book still survive today. And that makes it the oldest thesaurus in existence. 
That's so crazy that I've never heard of him. Yeah. I mean, I also don't speak Sanskrit, but, you don't? Uh, <laughs> but it feels like it would have come off. Yeah. <laughs> but let's skip ahead to the man whose name has become synonymous with the sources or the Sorai, and that's Peter Mark Roger. Mm-hmm. So Roger was the British doctor behind the world's most well-known thesaurus, but he actually got a start in reference books by working as a contributor on medical topics for the Encyclopedia Britannica. So he was deep into reference, but in 1805, Roger undertook a particular pastime. He started compiling words and arranging them by meaning and grouping them into these overarching themes. And even though he was still working as a physician, Roger kept up this word listing habit for 47 years. Wow, I didn't realize it was that long. That is insane. So, so what happened after that? Well, by 1852, Roger was ready to retire from medicine. And in his newfound free time, he decided to, you know, finally share his long in the works thesaurus with the public, which has an amazing title. You know, one that uh, Philo of Biblos could have uh, replicated. <laughs> Roger's Thesaurus of English Words and Phrases, classified and arranged so as to facilitate the expression of ideas and assist in literary composition. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue, right? <laughs> Not at all. That is crazy. And so, so did this take off? Yeah, in spite of the title. I, I mean, the book was this culmination of half a century of work, so it had to be the most comprehensive thesaurus on the market. It also differed from other reference books by sticking to Roger's thematic arrangement rather than just listing the words alphabetically. But whatever the reason, the public quickly caught on. And by the time Roger passed away in 1869, his thesaurus had been reprinted 25 times. Wow. And then countless times since then, too. You know, in fact, Roger's thesaurus has become so successful and widely used that January 18th, which is the day of his birth, that's now recognized around the world as thesaurus day. (laughs) You know, since we're on the subject of reference books that have had surprising appeal and longevity even, we should definitely talk about almanacs. So I know Ben Franklin's name always gets tossed around when you mention almanacs, but I think the only reason I know about modern almanacs is from Carmen Sandiego. Like, do you remember that? Of course. Played lots of Carmen Sandiego. Yeah, you needed the book to look up flags of countries and see where the thieves were running off to. Well, it's actually kind of genius that a computer game came boxed with a printed almanac, and I loved it. Just like having that fresh copy, it was pretty cool. But, you know, we're a little off track here. And so reference books definitely have this long history. And basically, almanacs had their heyday in the 17th and 18th centuries. That's when people were eager for this reliable way to receive information that was pertinent to their daily lives. So weather predictions and charts detailing times of sunrises and sunsets, these were really part of the main offerings. But almanacs expanded over the years to include everything from health advice to recipes, things like household tips, actually even jokes and puzzles in there. (laughs) I had no idea they had jokes or recipes, but they were super popular, right? Yeah, I mean, just to give you some idea of just how popular almanacs became, by the 17th century, only one publication outsold almanacs in England. And that's the art of the deal. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. I'm talking about the Bible. But it it wasn't just the British going crazy for almanacs. You know, of course, your boy Ben Franklin's publication, Poor Richard's Almanac, that that also came out around the same time. So here's where I get confused. Like, there's Poor Richard's, there's the Farmer's Almanac. I think there's even an old Farmer's Almanac. Like, are they all the same? Not exactly. I mean, they all cover pretty similar ground. So there is some crossover there. But All three of those are actually different publications. The Old Farmer's Almanac was founded in 1792, but the modifier old was just added retroactively once the Farmer's Almanac debuted in 1818. Hmm. And are either of them still around? They are, actually. Both of these are still being published today. The Old Farmer's Almanac even boasts of being the oldest continually published periodical in the U.S., and 
There's reason to believe them, too. I mean, when the first issue was released in 1792, George Washington was just beginning his second term as president. Wow. So are weather predictions still a big part of them? Well, it's definitely included. I mean, the Farmer's Almanac makes weather predictions two years in advance, and both almanacs claim to have about an 80% accuracy (laughs) rate. I mean, you know, skeptical researchers estimate that the almanac's real accuracy is somewhere closer to like 25 or 30%, which kind of just seems like a good guess. But, you know, the, the really interesting thing to me is the secrecy surrounding the formula behind the Farmer's Almanac and how they make their predictions. It includes esoteric factors like the position of the planets and sunspot activity and tidal forces. And, you know, I mean, they they use astronomy and math. How sophisticated (laughs) is that? But, you know, the actual formula is top secret. And, in fact, there's only one soul on the planet who knows it, and his name is Caleb Weatherby. (laughs) Isn't that the principle from the Archie comics? (laughs) I don't think that's a real person. Well, you're right that the name is fake, but the almanac swears there is a real person behind it. Apparently, the current Caleb Weatherby is the seventh person to take up the mantle in the publication's 200-year history. He's been on the job for almost 30 years now. And since it's a lifetime gig, I mean, he'll probably remain Caleb Weatherby until the day he dies. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, one thing I've read that I find sort of fascinating about the Farmer's Almanac is the way it kind of offered a sneak peek of the information age to come. And this is something that Adrienne LaFrance talks about in The Atlantic. And the idea is that the wide-ranging information and ease of access offered by Almanacs was kind of what, you know, a smartphone was going to be in the future. And as she put it, a handheld portable device that contained information about all manner of things. Well, it definitely seems true that digital sources like Wikipedia and even smart devices like the Amazon Echo or Siri, I mean, they have some roots in those traditional print reference books. And I guess the biggest question right now is, is there room enough for both of these? I mean, I kind of want to believe there is. For You know, I was looking at the numbers and sales of Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary have definitely fallen in recent years. But visits to their online dictionary have gone way up. And even on the print side, their dictionary remains one of the top sellers just behind the Bible. But to quote Peter Sokolowski, who's an editor for Merriam-Webster, the dictionary in the most generic scope is being used more than ever. You can have it as an app. It's online while you're at work. You have it as a print book. Book sales are down, but we're seeing an overall increase in use. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's encouraging. But, you know, you've got go-tos like Roger's and Merriam-Webster, and they may still have a place on the bookshelf. But I feel like encyclopedias are a different story. Mm-hmm. I mean, even seemingly immortal Encyclopedia Britannica ceased to produce print editions back in 2012, and they decided to go online exclusive instead. And really, I'm not sure who was still buying at that point, given that the final edition cost you a cool $1,400, which just seems so crazy now. But And as far as I can tell, the World Book Encyclopedia is the only encyclopedia left with actual paper in the game. Yeah, and, and a lot of people see the demise of print encyclopedias as a good thing. Because, you know, while there's a certain nostalgia tied up in this idea of a door-to-door encyclopedia salesman or those commercials that offered beautiful, hardbound knowledge for a low monthly payment, the reality is that these 20-plus volumes weren't often worth the price, or at least not for very long. Like, the rapid advancements in science or politics, they all ensured that most encyclopedias were outdated by the time they were printed. Yeah, though they were such wondrous things to explore, like thumbing through the pages and that serendipity of learning about weird topics. I mean, you can definitely go down these Wikipedia rabbit holes, but the experience, it just feels kind of different, you know? 
Yeah, but the fact that you can have endless pages and that they can be updated immediately really is amazing about the net. Plus, like, one of the arguments against print is that it looks so definitive or authoritative that it often encourages kids to, you know, be a little too trusting about what they read. But would you really rather kids trust a community-driven source like Wikipedia instead? <laughs> well, not definitively, but, you know, questioning online sources and seeking out verification for what you read, like, that's really important and a really important habit for kids to pick up today. You know, uh, Slate had a comment about this, and, and a writer wrote, if you want to learn to suss out the liars, there's no better training than Wikipedia. <laughs> I can't argue with that. <laughs> I mean, I do want to mention one last thing that's unique to print encyclopedias. And this came from a really interesting essay by David A. Bell that appeared in the New Republic back when Encyclopedia Britannica first announced the demise of its print component. And this is kind of a long one, but bear with me on this. So he says, with the disappearance of paper encyclopedias, a part of the Western intellectual tradition is disappearing as well. The great paper encyclopedias of the past had other, grander ambitions. They aspired to provide an overview of all human knowledge, and still more boldly to put that knowledge into a coherent, logical order. Even if they mostly organized their articles alphabetically, they also sought to link the material together thematically, all of it. In 1974, for instance, the editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica added to the work a one-volume Propedia, which sought to provide a detailed outline of human knowledge while referencing the appropriate articles of the encyclopedia itself. Large headings such as life, society, and religion were subdivided into these 40-odd divisions and then further into hundreds of individual sections. That kind of ambition mattered. It mattered that one could look at a stack of volumes and say, here are vast libraries distilled down into an essence of human knowledge and organized in a logical order. The books testified to the hope that ultimately human beings had at least a measure of control over the overpowering torrents and facts and ideas that they collectively produce. Wow. Well, uh, rest in peace, print encyclopedias. Why, why don't we dedicate this fact off in their honor? In the very first Encyclopedia Britannica, Homo sapiens were subdivided into five categories. American, European, Asiatic, African, and monsters. <laughs> so plenty of people are familiar with the Urban Dictionary, which defines slang for you. But where do you go when you need new slang for your slang? The Urban Thesaurus, of course. And while the site isn't exactly safe for work, here are just a few of the terms Urban Thesaurus used as alternatives for love. Lust, crush, boo, I love you, raw, and Kurt Cobain's killer. <laughs> Quite the list there, Mango. Well, I'm sure you know that J.R.R. Tolkien was obsessed with etymologies and language. But did you know that he actually worked as an assistant editor at the OED? Mm -mm. He worked on the W's and wrote multiple drafts for the definitions of walnut, walrus, and waistcoat, among other things. <laughs> Somehow it didn't even occur to me that like you'd write lots of drafts for each entry. Yeah. It's amazing. So here's something I thought was clever. The sentences to explain words in dictionaries are often meant to be simple and clear, but also kind of boring. But this artist, Jez Burroughs, has been stringing them together to make really weird short stories. He has a whole video series of dictionary stories, but my favorite is when he called the real dictionary phrases for the 12 days of Christmas. It's like the seventh day Baptist, six months of unclouded memories, five venturous young men, four slices of bread. Like these are all phrases in the dictionary and it's so dumb. But, you know, he has a whole chorus singing and it's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I found a great list of words that were first introduced to the public by presidents on history.com. 
So it's things like First Lady, which Zachary Taylor actually introduced. And apparently before he referred to Dolly Madison as the First Lady, people just referred to them as the Presidentress. Hmm. Also to make English less English, Thomas Jefferson brought French words to the U.S., including the word pedicure. I mean, that can't be real. Like, Thomas Jefferson introduced pedicures to America. <laughs> to, quote, describe the care of feet, toes, and toenails. He did it. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I've got one for you that I, I know you can't beat. Did you know that encyclopedias used to give away tiny plots of land when you bought a set? You know, I'd heard about these sorts of marketing ploys before. I think we even talked about it in a similar scheme in the, the Yukon with cereal boxes, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. But here's what's interesting. So between 1914 and 1919, you could get a slice of Huntington Beach in California with the purchase of an encyclopedia. And supposedly these encyclopedia lots were just 100 feet by 25 feet. And they were almost stacked up like a set of encyclopedias on a shelf. It was this like worthless gimmick that no one could really cash out on. Until 1920, when oil was found under all that land. No way. Yeah. So suddenly anyone who invested in knowledge got rich. Uh, well, you know, it's nice to know that knowledge pays off. So I agree. I cannot beat that fact. So I'm going to let you keep the trophy this week, Mango. Thanks so much. So that's it for today's episode. If we forgot any great facts about reference books, and I'm sure that we did, we would love to hear from you. You can email us parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. You can also call us on our 24-7 Fact Hotline, 1-844-PT-GENIUS. We've loved hearing a lot of the great calls that have come in recently. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility a new season of bridgerton is here and with it a new season of bridgerton the official podcast i'm your host gabby collins and this season we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton watch season three of the shondaland series on netflix then fall in love all over again by listening to bridgerton the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.